My name is Jacob Stoops. And I'm Jeff Luella. And you're listening to the Page Two Podcast. This is our podcast about the people of the SEO industry. We chronicle the real life stories, experiences, challenges, and advice from some of the most amazing people in the business. In this week's episode, we talk with Veruska and Kanatano, a multilingual SEO expert and digital marketing consultant with over 20 years of experience. We discuss how she started her career in the early days of the web in Italy, how she went from a journalism background to a long-term career in SEO, what it's like being a Google quality rater, as well as some of her best SEO experiences and stories. For our core topic, we discuss multilingual SEO from a content and cultural standpoint, including how SEO strategy might differ from culture to culture, language to language, and how to handle SEO for non-English or non-US based websites. Finally, we answered this week's Twitter questions and award an amazing set of laser-generated Page 2 podcast coasters. So get your popcorn ready as we tell Varuska's SEO story and have another great roundtable discussion. Hey everybody, this is Jacob Stoops and we are back for episode 65 of the Page 2 podcast. Uh, If you don't know me, I am an SEO director with Search Discovery, a data transformation company. Uh, By the way, we also do digital marketing, paid search, SEO. So you're happen to be a client out there listening. We we would love to to work with you. Uh, I am joined by my co-host, Mr. Jeff Luella. Uh, senior technical SEO at the Wirecutter, a division of the New York Times. Hey, howdy, hey. Hey, howdy, that, hey. I was going to say, that's Laser Luella now. I was going to say, yeah. Since I've so, upgraded my and bought a laser to uh, do some laser engravings. Laser. A laser. <laughs> laser. That's uh, me channeling Dr. Evil from Austin, Austin Powers. And actually, Jeff looks more like Dr. Evil than I do. So I do. So Jeff, uh, tell us about this laser. <laughs> oh no, it's just a small diode laser that that runs on a track. It looks kind of like a three D printer, um, but it's like a I think a five and a half watt diode laser with that's boring, you know, uh, that in there. But basically, it's it's really good for just engraving. Um, more high end powered ones will do like cutting through like metal and wood. Mine, mine's not that powerful. It's kind of my intro into lasers. But um, as many of you know, I'm like a DIY junkie. So my, you know, my wife has like a cricket where she can cut vinyl and I just wanted to outdo her by having, um, you know, lasers shoot through this, through the whole house, you know. Yeah. So you've built your own axe throwing course you have oh, a yeah. 3d 3d pl- printer you mm-hmm. and your daughter fly drones and do rope and she does robot videos and crushes us in terms of her number <laughs> of youtube subscribers uh and now you're into lasers and oh yes. wait also you make your own alcohol how do you yeah. have this much time um you know it's just there's just don't go to bed at night you know you might enjoy like eight hours of sleep but i'm out there rocking and rolling and I'm on a cornhole team. So I'm a professional oh cornhole gosh. player. Yeah. Professional. Yeah. Is, is this and by professional they, means I get $50 and I get for $50, I get a t-shirt and get to lose. 
but <laughs> I was going to say, I was like, we're, we're all in Ohio on lockdown. Is this what you guys do with your COVID lockdown or uh, your lack of lockdown yeah. in Georgia? Yeah. There's, there's benefits of having really bad government in my state. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. All right. So we have a really, really interesting, uh, interesting guest today. And we were talking uh, right before the episode and I'm almost positive that I'm, that I'm going to, going to butcher this, but I am, sure that when she comes on uh she can she's gonna she's gonna do her own name her own name justice in terms of the proper pronunciation uh but today straight from tech seo tech seo women uh, and by the way arij uh, uh, abu ali thank you so thank you so much uh for introducing us uh awesome tech seo women is an awesome group uh but today we have veruska and Conta- and Conatano. I totally butchered that. Veruska, welcome. <laughs> Hello. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, you did butcher a little oh, bit, but not that no. much. So I've, it could I've have been worse. Before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We should <laughs> have practiced life for an hour, but it's fine. I mean, uh, it could have been worse. So t- tell us how to properly say your name. So my name is Verushka, which is a Russian name. So it's so hard to pronounce that people call me Veru, V-E-R-U. It's easy. And my surname is even worse than my name. It's Italian because I'm Italian. It's Anconitano. So it's A-N-C-O-N-I-T-A-N-O. And basically it's Anconitano. So you don't change the A in E. Yeah, I don't know. It's weird. It's <laughs> one of those names. It in English, it's just like, you know. Anconitano. There you go. Correct. I just have That's to say it. it with my hands and yes. that, that, that exactly. helps. Uh, so we were, thing. we were talking a little bit about lineage uh, before we jumped on. And I want to like, I, I, I would love to kind of get into, into this before we get into, um, into your background. So what, it, what, because you've got your, your name, which is very Russian sounding, and you've got your your lineage, which I only deduced based on your Twitter handle. Uh, and then you have where you live, which is Ireland. Okay. So tell okay. us about yourself in terms of your background and your lineage. Um, yeah, so I'm 99.8% Italian, according to my uh, DNA test. So, uh, but I moved from Italy to Ireland 11 years ago. But still, as you can may recall from my accent, I'm extremely still very Italian. So my English <laughs> is not proper English yet after 11 years. But yeah, so I'm an Italian living abroad and working abroad. So but yeah, nothing special. Just my name, my my Russian name is is, is my dad's fault. <laughs> so yeah, I was gonna I was gonna ask about that, and it's funny because at least here in the states, uh, Ita- Italians love to be Irish. And Irish loves to love to be Italian. So literally on on things like St. Patrick's Day, everybody, including Italians, and my my father-in-law is very, very Italian, loves to loves to be Irish. Uh, but then the rest of the year he's very much into uh being Italian and he's very proud of his Italian um Italian heritage. But then you, you so your Twitter uh handle is La Cucina. Uh, yes. What does that? I think I know what that means, but I'm sure you can probably tell me better what that means. So my Twitter handle is La Cuochina, 
which okay. is similar to La Cucina, but La Cucina means little chef in Italian, and there are two reasons why I chose that nickname uh, 10, 11 years ago. The first one is, is because I'm Italian and I'm really into food. And I own a few projects, uh, food, food travel related. So it was just like connected. And the second one uh, is because uh, I, I like to think of my job and my profession as like a chef when you mix ingredients together to get a result. So this was like, uh, I'm a little chef working with different elements to get results on something. And at the same time, it also express my love, love, love for food. So this so is ends why. So this is two weeks in a row that we've had guests with really, really interesting Twitter handles. And Jeff, yeah. you and I, by comparison, no matter what Jason Barnard thinks about how cool our names are, which they're not cool, yeah. our Twitter <laughs> handles, which are just our names, are so much more boring uh, than our last guest, uh, Paul's, who was fi- at Fito, very, very well known. <laughs> kind of personal branding and of course for for Ruska's and I knew by reading your Twitter handle I'm not yeah, I'm, I'm no language expert but I've seen uh enough it, uh, Italian uh, things through my father-in-law to know that that uh, I thought it was the, the something about the kitchen so I'm glad that I'm glad to know that it was not far not far off it was so I, before we get into the episode too, I've got a funny a funny story speaking of speaking of lineage that I was relating. Um, so as I've mentioned, my fa- my father in law, uh, very much Italian, and uh, his, his family, uh, their last name is Pachano. The same, yeah, you know, it, it's you kind of kind of name you say with your you say with your hands, right, Pachano. Uh, and my wife, when we got married actually seriously considered uh asking me to because my name is stoops it's very like northern northern european it's very german boring um nothing special about my about my last name and her last name is clearly so much better better than mine but when you get married, uh, the the custom, whether people agree with it or not, is the woman tends to take the the man's name, and I just had never really considered it. I never really thought that it would be a that it would be a consideration, and, and we actually considered before she ended up taking uh, taking my name, doing it the other way the other way around because her last name was so much so much cooler than uh, than mine. Um, but yes, yeah, she ended up taking taking my last name. And the funny thing about my father, my father-in-law, and his Italian uh, Italianness, I should say, uh, is he took a DNA test and he found out that he actually was not very Italian. He found out that he was mostly Swedish, uh, which was not what he expected. Uh, and you know he's he's even in in Columbus. There's the Columbus Italian Club. He's huge in the Columbus Italian Club, and you would never, based on his last name, anticipate that he's not really that much Italian. And then I come along with my last name, which is not Italian at all, and I take the same DNA test, and it turns out I'm actually percentage-wise the same level of Italian as him. Exactly the same, almost no difference. So. That was a really, really funny observation. And he was like, all right, Jake, now you can get into the Columbus Italian Club. And I'm like, but with my last name, like, how can I get into the Columbus Italian <laughs> Club with my last name? It just would never work. So just add a couple more vowels. Yeah, yeah. Just add a add a vowel onto the end of my name. Um, 
Yeah. All right. Uh, enough about enough about heritage, Veruska. We are going to get into your uh, your background next, but first, uh, we want to make sure that we talk about something that is very near and dear to our heart, uh, and that is uh, United Search. We've been uh, kind of in in an informal sponsorship relationship with them, uh, and we've been kind of making sure that we talk about them uh, every episode because we do believe uh, that kind of their mission is very important. So. If you're a listener, so are you looking to break into the SEO conference speaking circuit, but not sure how? Are you feeling that you are not well represented within the current SEO speaking circuit and you want to change that? We at the Page Two Podcast would like to take the opportunity to let users know about United Search, a new organization and first of its kind SEO speaker accelerator, accelerator dedicated to ending the implicit bias in SEO that keeps BIPOC, LBGTQIA+, and women in the margins of our industry. Their credo is diverse SEO equals better SEO. United Search offers mentoring advice from people with real world practical SEO experiences in order to give students the skills they need to be able to deliver an amazing presentation on any stage and the network they need to land gigs all at no cost to the student. How does this work? It's actually pretty simple. United Search connects a cohort of the best pitches they can source with the top mentors in their subject matter. After working with their mentors to develop their talk, they will host a live stream event where students get to present to SEO experts and receive positive constructive feedback. Graduates of this Speak SEO Accelerator will get the benefit of top-notch mentorship, public speaking training, a video reel, lots of positive feedback, as well as a foot in the door to help find and land speaking gigs and access to an amazing community of SEO professionals. What does this mean for our podcast? As a sponsor and advocate, we're committed to regularly showing stats that illustrate our commitment to diversity on this podcast, and we've made a pledge to diversify, meaning that 60% of our guests will come from underrepresented groups, including women, BIPOC, BAME, LGBTQIA+, as well as representation for people with disabilities and those who are 55 plus and older. If this sounds of interest to you, visit unitedsearch.org to learn more about becoming a student or mentor, or visit them on Twitter at search underscore united. Uh, yeah, that uh, that is a great organization. Um, very much, uh, very much, kind of into their into their mission, and you know, I'm I'm really hoping that as we talk to different people within the industry and now we're, you know, we're on episode 65 as our listeners kind of go back and look through, uh, look through kind of the roll call of the, the different SEOs that we've talked to. Um, not that I want to like pat ourselves on the back. That's not what it's about, but I do hope that they see that there are people out there that are really trying to commit to establishing a certain level of balance so that it's not all, middle-aged, middle-aged, uh, uh, white guys. Yeah. On every speaking panel or every podcast or just the same recycled group of industry thought leaders that you kind of always see and that the industry has fallen into. So we're doing our best with our humble little podcast, just to make sure that there's, there's balance, that it's not the same old people that we bring fresh perspectives and that we bring, um, balanced perspectives from all over the industry. Cool. Um, all right, uh, Veruska, so you're now on the hot seat. Uh, oh. <laughs> yes, let's talk about uh, your background. How did you get into SEO and digital marketing? So I started uh, years ago. 
I've been in this in this industry for the past 20, 21 years or so. Uh, I started when started when the web in Italy was basically at its primordial stage. Nobody was taking, nobody knew and knew anything about SEO. We didn't even know what search engine optimization was. So I was working with a big company, and they were they were just we were just producing articles for the sake of doing it. And at a certain point, uh, I ended up checking my articles uh, uh, and noticed that they were ranking at first places on Google. And I started questioning why this is happening. What's the story here? Um, how is it even possible? And what possibilities can this bring in the future? And so I started to just, uh, I got into this weird, uh, what, what wasn't SEO at first, uh, something just researching and try to find answers to questions. And I started to figure out, well, there is a trick to get here and there is a value if you if you can be in first or second position. So the first thing that I do that I did was opening the first one of the first Italian digital magazines that I sold uh, 10, 10 years ago, nine years ago. That was basically my gym. So my play, the place where I did my training and where I experimenting getting paid for ranking first place, um, failure, and also a lot of successes. And from there, basically, I started start my career. From there, I work at Google as a quality rater. And then from there, basically, I started to work. Uh, so basically, I started as a mostly as a as a writer, as what we call today SEO writer, and then I move into more project management position. And then when I move to project management, I also say, I think I have the skill to do something even more specific and, and something that very few people, at least in Europe, are doing, are still doing today, which is multi multilingual SEO. So basically, I started out of casualty. And just because it happens, because I was in the right place in the right moment. So... In kind of researching your background a little bit, it looks like you went to school for journalism. And I think at some point I would love to create an infographic that is basically a conglomeration of the most common jobs or studies, fields of study before people became SEOs. Because the, I would say the thing that is the most common thread outside of things like imposter syndrome uh, that we talk about on an episode by episode basis and why we think everybody's story is so interesting is that nobody's story ever starts with, I intended to go into SEO, unless you're becoming an SEO now. Um, you know, if you're, if you've been in the industry for maybe more five, more than five or six years, it's usually you got into SEO by accident. So you went to school for journalism and I guess take us back to then how did how did journalism land land you towards digital marketing and and getting into into SEO uh, it's easy shortage shortage of job so i couldn't find anything and i did pay i had to pay my rent i i i moved away from home when i was 18 and I intended to pay for my university. And then uh, I didn't want to, 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 to go to my parents and say, you have to pay because I'm studying. So, and I wanted, I really wanted to, to write for a living. And then I just realized 
this is not going to work. I need to find something else. And between in jobs, uh, I I just jumped into the world of content writing, online content writing that was just starting. And it paid well. It paid extremely well. So basically, I was dragged into the industry because my desire to become a writer, journalist, uh, wasn't going to be fulfilled because of shortage of jobs, which is a, a thing still today. Mm-hmm. And then money actually were the other the other factor combined with the fact that I saw a potential in something that was actually evolving and something that I, I I'm really into data. So I I saw. If I can back up these things with data, I think I can get something out of of this, out of something that just happened. I can make a career out of it. But yeah, I definitely because I didn't find a job. <laughs> it is really interesting. I feel like every journalism major that we've talked to, and it's now probably, I think, five or six over the course of time, all of them, almost to a T, it was they fell into SEO and digital marketing because when they got out of college, there were no journalism jobs. Uh, and and I would say a lot of them uh, fall closer to the uh, at least I don't I don't know if things collapse there, but he, here around 2007, 2008, there was a big economic uh, bubble that that burst along with the housing market that took a lot of jobs uh, with it and journalism kind of being one of those industries uh that in jur- journalism as an industry and newspapers and and things like that uh is that have been historically based in print have been dying for a long time in favor of the you know more of the online online medium so it's just an, an interesting observation uh that it seems like every journalism major not that journalism is a bad major or anything like that but the, of the ones that fell into SEO it was primarily because when they got out there was no jobs and people got to pay rent for someone who works at the New York times journalism is <laughs> oh, <yeah>. not dead. <laughs> no, it is. It is not. It is not. It is not dead, but you're no, not there, selling. There's a shift. Yeah. You're not there was selling a shift, as many right? physical papers yeah. as you were. Uh, and, and you'll yeah. notice like if you go on to most news websites uh, these days, uh, if you try to read an article, like you get halfway down that article and up pops the paywall uh, yep. And that's a very real thing to to supplement the income totally that's agree. being lost from the the actual physical delivery of papers, right? And and the the idea behind it, a lot of it is like, yeah, physical papers are going away, and mm-hmm. you know, and it, I'm not giving away any of the the back end stuff. Is that you know, New York Times knows this? Like we've really focused on digital, and those companies that could change are changing, right? So we do have, like we have more subscribers now digitally than we ever had at the paper because New York Times was a New York based paper, but now we're a worldwide based, you know, online digital asset for for it. And, and we've really been switching a lot of the things that we've been doing, um, you, you know, normal, you think about the news, it's like, or, or at least papers, it was written, it's published, um, it's not really live, right? So we, we've really been focusing a lot on that live side of things. And then now we have so many more. Instead of just doing digital content on the site, we also have been buying up podcasts and like have our own like top podcast. And um, we're hoping to buy us one day, you know? It's a, no, but they just bought like cereal. And, and then, you know, we've really focused a lot on a lot of the digital stuff. And they've now branched out to documentaries and, and things like that. So like the journalism's still there. It's just not your typical paper. Um, and when you hear like, when I hear them 
say that like if if you just look at stock prices like over the last like 10 years our stock just keeps going up <laughs> um it's because we found a way to switch things around now not every newspaper can do that not every journalistic out- outfit can do it um but it was one that uh, i've been lucky that uh, i'm a part of now so Veruska, what is it like being a google quality rater i don't think we've ever had anybody on that's been a quality rater before yeah uh stressing but you have to imagine that I was very young. I'm not that young anymore, but I was very young and I wanted to learn. So when this opportunity came around, uh, I couldn't say no because it was Google. It was a booming industry and it gave me a lot of insights. But uh, at that time, uh, and I'm talking about possibly 15, 16 years ago, when Google was actually building Google News, I was on the team for Google News. Um, it was a, a gigantic um, amount of work because you had to rate something but also apply some thoughts. It was not, there was just a little bit of in, the artificial intel, intelligence at that time. Now it's way more advanced, of course. So you really need, needed to um, apply your judgment but also find the data to back up your choice. Um, and it, it was sometimes it was extremely hard because you also have cultural constraints when you judge something and that's something that our quality raters still today i know people that now have progressed in their career now work at google or other at other companies um so you have to take your cultural prejudice away when you rate but they are there so i remember some queries for me were extremely hard because my mind was not there. I, 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 w- I couldn't accept certain things that I was supposed to accept. But it's been a huge, huge help for my career. I understood a little bit better also how corporate places work, how to engage with corporate people, with a business, uh, a big business, an expanding business. Uh, I think this has been, uh, aside from my personal website, my personal stuff has been one of the biggest experience of my career in terms of how to handle the stress, how to handle the people, how to handle your mental constraints and how to grow up from being just a person of rights and wants to do something to actually being some, someone that does that something. So how, I guess the question is because I, you know, somewhere in the world, somewhere in our listener base, there's somebody out there, they may not be a Google quality rater, they may be doing a different job, or they may be at an agency where the agencies make, you know, making them put in 70 hours a week, or, uh, you know, any, any other thing. Uh, How did you, what did you learn? And how did you handle that stress that was coming at you at that time? Uh, at first, it was extremely bad because I couldn't filter the information. So I just filled my mind with so many stuff that I remember if possibly the first five, four or five months, it was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not learning anything and what should I do? And then that's where I started to process everything as a single project. And I entered into that project management type of mind that helped me prioritize things and also get um, get acquainted with the idea that a uh, working day as seven, eight, nine hours, and then you're done, you have to be done because otherwise your mind never switch. 
Um, so in terms of handling the stress, I, I remember the first four or five months were a nightmare. And then the more I get into this habit of working always on repetitive tasks and also kind of saying, this is my project for today. I need to achieve this, this and that everything gets smoother. So it's like pretty much everything. When you start, you fear that you cannot completed or you are not able and you are overwhelmed with information or the more you start using the tools uh, you get used to the language you get used to the people and also you get used to your let's say boss or superiors the more you get comfortable and it becomes easy I think unless you have huge problems with your working place uh, then it, it becomes easy and extremely pleasant and get, then it's where you really learn yeah, and I'm gonna, you don't learn anything. I'm gonna drop a bit of advice here from the movie Frozen 2 because I've got I've got young kids, so like these types of oh. movies are my are my life. Uh, and it's also been my experience, right? There can be stressful situations. <laughs> you work at an agency, if you do freelance, even in-house, uh, stressful situations where a lot of work is being piled uh, on top of you. And I I can't remember, I think it's Anna who says, sometimes you just have to do the next right thing. Uh, and, and if you allow the end point sometimes to, to, if you allow yourself to focus on where you have to end up, sometimes you'll forget that like, hey, if, if this end point is a really, really big goal, you can't get it all done in one day. You've got to take a lot of small steps along the way that equal this huge goal. And sometimes there are people that think like, oh my God, I've got to get this done and I've got to get that done and I got to get that done. And then they just spin their wheels worrying about all the big things they got to get done and then they get nothing done. Uh, and one of the things that that I've found comfort in is just breaking things up into small steps. What is the next right thing that I can do to make progress towards this bigger goal? And, and as I end every workday, some workdays are harder than others. Uh, some, uh, you know, some are easier than others. I always ask myself kind of a personal question like, Jake, today when you finished work or when, when you, um, you know, did whatever you did at home, did you push the ball forward a little bit? And if my answer to that question, it's a very simple question. My answer to that question is, yes, I pushed the ball a little bit forward towards wherever I want to go. Then that was a good day. If I have a day where I say, no, I didn't push that ball forward at all. Then I know that, Hey, I can't have another day like that. And for me, that's a very simple, easy measuring stick. Uh, you know, as I've kind of dealt with stress throughout my career, and I'm hoping other people can kind of adapt adapt that. Um, so you've been a freelancer uh, and you've been a project manager uh, for for a long time. So I guess kind of bring us bring us up to date because we've been kind of focused very early on in your career. Uh, you know, once you stopped being kind of a Google quality rater, where did you go from from there, and what has your career been like up until now? So um, I moved straight to management after that. So I I kept having and I still have my own projects that are heavily SEO and digital marketing based. But then, you know, um, Italy is a very small place and I speak multiple languages. So once your name gets out, it gets out. And it, it's a matter of fact. I mean, uh, it, it is what it is. And uh, so I get uh, 
quite a lot of offer to to start directly to work and manage projects. So I I, I jump and manage a huge editorial project, SEO-based editorial project for a publisher that was going, uh, that wanted to break in Italy, in the UK and Spain and France. And I was in charge of managing the whole SEO stuff, the, the writers, the strategy, everything. From there, it was just one after another. At a point that when I moved to Ireland, uh, um, I worked with a couple of uh, travel companies. Travel is one of my other passions. So when whenever I can work with travel and food, I'm extremely happy. <laughs> because, you know, that's the best thing in life. And, and then uh, I, had, uh, I had another offer. When I was working in one of these companies, always as a consultant, I've never been a, an employee, whether a contractor or an um, in-house uh, freelancer, but never been an employee. So I, I, I never, it's not in my, in my, in my mind. Uh, I, I went to Groupon. So they wanted, they were expanding into Europe and they were, they are an American company and they were completely American focused on everything and they needed someone that helped them to culturalize their approach using SEO. So I took charge at first to Italy and then I got Spain, France, UK, pretty much the whole EMEA market and launched projects that, that when repl- were replicated also to the US because they were successful. And yeah, it's basically one after another. And I, I'm now in that phase where I'm working with for a long time uh, with same companies um, and and I get other projects as well. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's been kind of steady as soon as I started to realize uh, where my skills uh, were and also how to develop further my skills, my multilingual, my multilingual SEO skills, uh, it's just like happened. So it's a mix of, again, being at the right time in the right moment, but also having the skills that certain markets and certain industries needed and still needs. Yeah, excellent. So we're going to move into uh, multilingual SEO with a, with a, a content strategy and cultural twist here in in just a second. So, uh, if you're listening to that uh, to this episode and that's kind of what you're what you're here for, make sure you listen to kind of the middle the middle segment and the Twitter questions are are filled with lots of uh, multilingual uh, questions as as well. But before we get into that, of course, I want to ask. We talk a lot about agency, we talk a lot about in-house, and we do have some consultants, but it's mostly you're either at an agency or you're, or you're in-house somewhere. So we always like to ask the folks that have been kind of out on their own as, uh, as independent consultants, kind of what do you see as the pros and cons of being uh, a consultant as opposed to being, being an, an employee somewhere? Well, the first is the obvious one. You are an employee, you start at nine, you finish at six, that's it. Your day is done. When you are a consultant, you are you have basically to take care of your clients and you have to find new ones. You have to have a backup. And if you reach to a point where you have a lot multiple clients, you may also need to scale your 
kind of small business. So you need to be sure that you have a backup, other colleagues that you trust that can help you if you need some help or even last minute. So it's more networking than just work when you are an employee or working for an agency. Uh, definitely one of the cons, it can be not being involved as much as you should be and as you can be if you are a full-time employee. Um, because you are you are always an external person that you have to work uh, towards goals so the company expect you to bring results uh, and and uh, working towards goals while and sometimes you feel disconnected you can feel disconnected if there's not that strong culture uh, business culture where you feel everybody feels included and this can be a huge downside especially if you are new to the industry it can put you like okay i'm not ready to do this because i don't know what's happening in reality i'm doing this but i don't know what other teams are doing um but for me it's just a uh, pros to be completely honest uh, either i've been extremely lucky lucky with clients and projects uh, or it's just because i'm used to it but for me they having the freedom to to adjust my schedule uh, and also to sometimes if I have to work late, it's fine. I've chosen this lifestyle. Uh, it gives me what I need. And sometimes I think that what happened, what would happen if I was only working for one client, I'm sure that, I don't know, I may be annoyed, bored. I don't know. Yeah. I think I've, uh, there are pros and cons. I think um, I, for one fit better uh fit better within agency because it gives me enough variety and there's an, there's just enough happening uh that I seem to I seem to like it but I also I don't have the guts or the entrepreneurial spirit to go out on my on my own uh and I've been in house and you're you're right there there is some comfort in working on the same thing every single day but as as an SEO I found that like I got also very bored really quickly. Uh, Jeff, what are, you know, now that you've been in house for a while for the first time in your career, how do you feel about that? Yeah. You know, I I was one of my biggest concerns was that I was going to get bored of like working on one website. Um, Only been there six months or seven months now. So I can't really (laughs) say I've been bored. And are you bored yet, Jeff? (laughs) I'm not, you know, the one, one of the great things about it is that I, I get to spend way more time time on things where it's um, where I can get deeper and deeper and and actually have that feedback cycle with um, people in engineering or on the team where um, I'm building up strategies and usually on the the agency side, you you write them up as great as you can, hand them off. Hopefully some people on the other side are are doing and implementing. Um, Now I'm, I'm part of those conversations. So not only am I doing that, I'm inside of Jira. I'm inside of, I have access to GitHub. I'm not putting any code in there, but I can look at the code and, and actually pull stuff out and say, Hey, this is where we're going. And and I have a plan. Like we have a plan for this whole year. We, we you know, I never get to do that in the agency side. Um, so it, it is, uh, you know, right now it, it helps when your website's getting, you know, um, you know, millions and millions of visits a, a month. <laughs> Um, small things matter. So, you know, where before I'd be like, oh, that doesn't matter because it's like, that's only going to give us like a 5% boost. Right now, a 5% boost could be, you know, 
15 million visitors make your <laughs> so, whole year <laughs> exactly so so we are looking for those type of numbers now so, so that's that is an interesting aspect so I, I think if it was like a small little site i think i would probably get bored um but if it was smaller i'd probably have more control too so i i, I think it's give and take on on any of those but uh one thing about any agency like you if there was any lull it's filled with other clients not having a lull so um so that's where i think that that think you're going to get bored type of things is that so you, you do make your time i get to play around and code a lot more i get to do some more development so um things that i wasn't able to do when, when i was in the agency but at the same time i'm like sometimes you do got to sit back and find those you know, like where can i be putting myself i have this extra time um if i'm not applying that time then i feel like you know then you know I've been through one layoff this last year. <laughs> Don't ever want to have that happen again. So, you know, I'm always filling in any of those little holes that I've been through. And um, so and I'm always imagining the consultant side of things too, is um, people coming to you with work um, all the time. Like how you, you said, you, like you build a name up and a reputation and, and I've just seen a lot of consultants try to take on too much. Um, so finding that balance on your side, I think has got to be tough. Like how do you find that balance of actually getting that work done um and actually having a life you know because i because if it was me i could be sitting there till midnight just writing and writing up recommendations and code and and things like that so i i jake when you ask me where i find time for all these these hobbies like i force the hobbies on me so that i'm not sitting here all day all night doing seo Yeah, no, I don't know. I, I, I don't know how you guys, uh, know how I, <laughs> I would be the same way. Um, where if I, if I didn't have like a guardrails, uh, on myself, I could, yeah. it's, you know, it's just a, it's a, it's a passion. I, you know, I think we're yeah. all lucky enough to have a, a job that is, that we're passionate about and not everybody is that, is that lucky. So got to put yeah. some, got to put some guardrails guard on it for sure. Yep. Um, last question before we jump into the multi multilingual. And I, I like to ask this because, you know, it's, this is about the, the real life, what SEOs go through. Um, so Veruska, like in your career, what have been kind of your best and worst SEO related experiences? Um, hard question, to be honest. Uh, so my best experience, uh, um, it, it's been possibly bringing more results than I was at what I was planning to. So, you know, usually when you start a project, you need to scope it out and say, okay, by third month, I'm going to bring you this, but there must be also these other consequences. And in that specific case uh, that happened actually a couple of years ago, I over underestimated everything because I didn't I didn't put much effort. I said, no, this industry is way too difficult uh, and there are too many competitors. Uh, and then either I was lucky or I was just like I, I find I found the key to penetrate exactly what the company wanted to achieve, to get exactly what the company wanted to achieve uh, within SEO. And I did a few tweaks here and there on the website worked on the content side uh, and uh, got amazing results. Uh, one of the worst experience was actually getting a bad penalization because I didn't realize that I was actually filling the website with keywords. So I over 
I optimized the content in a way that I was actually thinking, no, that's fine. Nothing happens. You know, when you just overcomplicate things. And I overcomplicated things uh, both for search engine and for people. So, and, and where I learned the biggest lesson possibly that it's human first and search engine then. And UX uh, is part of SEO if it's not SEO. Uh, it was a, a huge lesson. Uh, I didn't lose the client because uh, I didn't. But I actually had to fix the situation uh, and mostly make sure that it, it wouldn't happen again uh, to them and to me and to other clients as well. Um, yeah, I'm still shocked when I talk how about you, this thing. Because... When that happens, how do you go to the client and communicate that like that's got to be ex- excruciating yes i i'm a, i'm actually this is a, a good and a bad thing i i have no problem uh, in be, being responsible and accountable even for good and for worst so as soon as i realized i just i screwed up guys so i made this this and this and that's and that's why we are having this situation um, there are ways to fix this. It takes time. So you can fire me and find someone else or you can just say, okay, let's see what happens. If I can recover or at least bring things as they were, we are all happy and then we can move forward with me or without me. If I can't, up to you, of course, uh, you have the right to fire me and just say, no, you are not the right person. But yeah, um, I I, tend, I, I I didn't polish because there was nothing to polish in reality. Yeah. It was very bad. Yeah. So what, well, what can you say? It was like, no, it's not my fault. Someone else. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Good for, good for you for, for owning that and good for the client for having a little bit of empathy because SEO is not always an easy, an easy job. It's not like paid search where it's a clean in, clean out, clean results sort of exercise. There's a lot of gray area. And not only that, because things change all the time, there's a lot of testing involved with how far you can push the boundaries, which is why there's been many different hats, colors of hats over the years that people can wear. And even people with good intentions, sometimes it leads to not great outcomes when you push the boundaries a little bit too far, but good for you for owning it because I've been a part of uh, you know, organizations, or I've seen people in the past where they, it's more about crafting the story to make yourself look good than the actual story, than actually what's, what's happening. And, and, you know, the, the deeper I've got into my career, I feel like the, the, the less comfortable I am with that sort of a, sort of an approach to the point of like, I won't do that anymore uh, I, even if it means making myself look bad, uh, just from an ethical, ethical standpoint. So good for you. Good for you. For, yeah, I think it's uh, the more you age with yeah. age and experience, uh, you kind of, you want to handle this thing when you are younger, you're scared. What should I do now? But the more, the more you grow, the, the more you really feel the need to own also the mistakes yeah. and the failures. So, so Jeff, let's move into the core topic, which is multilingual SEO uh, and content strategy with a cultural twist. Yeah, no, it, it's funny. So I've, I've worked on a lot of international websites myself, but never multilingual. Well, if they were, I didn't handle the 
not knowing any other language besides English. And I barely know that language. Um, I haven't really worked a lot in, in the multilingual kind of SEO world. So what are some of the most or more important aspects of, of multilingual? Um, and, and I'm, and I'm go- coming from it as like from a content side, right? Not even looking at the technical side, but looking at the content side, like what are some of the most important aspects? Uh, it's usually and always, not usually actually, always understanding the cultural landscape that you want to enter. And I, I have a funny story, which is not really funny. It's usually what happens. People think that, for example, Spain and Mexico are thinking the same way, use the same words because they speak Spanish. Mm-hmm. It's not true at all. Spain speaks Spanish, Mexico speaks Spanish, but they use wording uh, in different ways. Uh, their cultural landscape is completely different one from another. Mm-hmm. So when you have to, uh, to, to, to enter the Spanish Spain market, uh, you cannot use the same approach from a content standpoint that you would use uh, if you are already in Mexico. And, that's the biggest thing for me. But I wouldn't actually say that the technical aspect is not important in this case. It, it is e- equally important because mm-hmm. it determines the effort that you put in producing content and getting a good ranking, uh, getting links, uh, pretty much everything. So I would say in terms of content, it's certainly understanding the cultural landscape uh, that you want to enter, but backing it up with a good structure or at least a clear structure, not a, not necessarily good, but a clear one that allows you to really stay focused. Yeah, and, and I was thinking about it more in kind of the the Mexico and Spain, you know, they're two separate company or countries, not companies, <laughs> two separate countries. Um, but how about like a country like, you know, India, right? It's, it's one country, but with like multiple and I, I from what I gather, there's like 80 or 90 like variations of languages inside of there. Um, but it's like one country, right? So it's like a .in domain. <laughs> um, like how would you handle something like that where there could be, like I, I'm sure, and I know China's the same way, where there's, you know, multiple versions of languages because the countries are so big and have so many people. Well, so what, what are some of the aspects there? And I would also add even same language, different dialects or... Dialects, yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. And in this specific case, Italy is the same. It's we have one language and multiple dialects. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit, of course, less complicated than India or China. But in this specific case, you target the main language. Because unless you are extremely local and you want to go local, I mean, but extremely local, like right. you're a local business, there's no need to go in depth. Because even if you have dialects, people, on that level where they use the web to search and to, to do stuff, uh, they know the main language. So they mm-hmm. know Chinese uh, and then they know uh, Indian. And then you have also to understand that from a cultural standpoint, Chinese people uh, have also a specific mindset regardless uh, of their region or their dialect. They may have a different dialect, a different food, but the habits, the user habits are are the same so the easiest way is to unless you go extremely local because you are a local business but possibly you don't need international localization because you are local yeah, yeah the main language serves the entire country otherwise you will over complicate things so how do, how do um approaches differ from different cultures to different cultures yeah 
it is kind of a thoughtful process that um, the, the first thing to do is that really knowing the culture. So, for example, in my specific case, uh, I happen to work with multiple countries, but I, sometimes I don't know the countries. Like, for example, when it's Japan or Korea, even if I'm extremely passionate, there are things that I don't know because it's completely different from me. So the yeah. first thing that I do is I search for local people, local experts, because I want to have a grasp on what really search is in there. What's what's also especially the user habits when they search for something. And that's possibly the first step that a lot of companies completely miss. So if you want to localize in another language, you need to have local people or people that have an in-depth knowledge of the culture. Because too, too often the process is I have the English version or I have the French version or the Italian version and I want to go to another market. What I do, I just translate the keywords, and that's it. Sometimes it can work, like sometimes, for example, Italy and Spain are quite similar in terms of user habits, markets, uh, industries, and it may work. But there's, you will never move from a point where you are just providing a basic service to the next level. Mm -hmm. So having the help of locals uh, is crucial at the first, first stage when you start planning your multilingual multilingual SEO strategy because otherwise you miss a lot of things and then you have to 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 repair the damage and spend way more time fixing things and and that that's the biggest thing for me and another thing that it's always uh, and very almost always uh, uh, underlooked uh, is seasonal trends what seasonal uh, uh, in one part of the world, it's not seasonal in another part of the world. And that um, that shapes your keyword research or your, and your content. And sometimes it gives direct, especially in, the, in regards to e-commerces, that's something that I work a lot with e-commerces. With e it shapes your strategy, not just the SEO strategy, it shapes your product team strategy, your project Team, uh, your basically your PPC, CRM, pretty much everybody, and everything starts from search because search can give direction to every other teams within a specific market. So I I would say seasonal trends are over underlooked but are extremely important in planning a good content strategy, a multilingual content strategy. Um, and then uh, another thing that I always put into my equation uh, is backing up uh, uh, SEO data with other sources. It can be social media, it can be PPC, it can be just a mere observation of the landscape. What's the most thought topics uh, and why? Is there a correlation why something uh, becomes popular and then really di deep dive into conversation rather than just see, okay, in May, uh, people in Italy are looking for this, so let's produce content for this. It's way more. There, you, you can use, we should use always data from other sources to back up our SEO choices because, yeah, it's, it's it, yeah, it, it can give you good insights. Yeah. I don't know if it answers more or less the question. Yeah, no, de definitely. This is all great. Like, I've, the, the most I've really done with, you know, anything multilingual is like I, I use translation services, right? So I was, and these services say that they are 
like they have people on the ground in those locations and they're writing, you know, they, they and I have to take their word for it many times. Um, for the most part, like those companies that I, that I work with are were US based. So those other countries, they didn't care as much, right? They just wanted to have, they had a German office. So they needed German, you know, written content. Um, so we, I would use a company since I couldn't use, you know, a different company in each country. Like you just, you get a translation service company um, and hoping that they're just not running it through Google Translate um, and that they are doing what they're saying. But at the, at the same time, like how, when you work with, kind of those other uh, countries where you're doing content strategies in there, how close to the ground are you using with people there? Like, or, or are you using like a, a service that would help translate that there? Or, or, you know, if you need something written in German, um, are you working with a German company to have that written? Uh, ideally, I work with real people, not agencies, unless yeah. for, with many countries, I work with agencies that I know that are local, never, never big agencies that are, I don't know, located in Germany and then provide services in Chinese, Korean, Japanese, whatever, French. Because I always have a feeling that it's like a content farm, translation content farm. And it's hard. Sometimes I did work with one of those, uh, I think last year, because one of my clients already had a contract in place. So let's try and see what happens. And what happened was that when the content came, I, I, I had a look and I felt something was not good, was not, was not right. There was something that wasn't right. So I just said, let's, let's pass this content to a person and let's see if this person thinks that they are good or they are not good. And the results was terrible because we had to rework the content. So sometimes, uh, of course, uh, these kind of uh, agencies uh, allow you to spend less, but you spend less and you get less. The majority of yes. the time, it's not always like this. But most of the cases, uh, you spend less, you get less. Or you have to spend more on a later stage to review the content and to just even tweak here and there. So my, my, my approach is always go local. If I, if I don't have uh, resources myself, uh, I, I have a, a network of agencies that yeah. I can contact that are local, pretty local, pure local. That, that's good. I, I think having that network and, and you, know, you specializing in it would be great. So now I know I have someone that I can... Uh, go to when I run into anything that I need internationally done. My pleasure. Well, <laughs> so it's I'm, the New York Times, so I mean. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so I've been a part of some, some engagements uh, with clients who have uh, content in multiple languages or for multiple regions or both. Uh, and one of the problems that I see most commonly occurring that causes a lot of cannibalization in non-U.S search engines would be that they create pages that are supposed to be alternative language or alternative region, and they don't bother to translate those pages. As as somebody who comes at this often from a non-English perspective, how bad, how bad is that? And, and quite honestly, one of my things is like, if I were a non-English user, I would be a little offended 
uh, by that if I came to a page expecting it to be in my language of choice and then it's just all English. Uh, so how bad is that? How bad is that? I, I think this is another case where it's, it is partially SEO, but it's mostly UX. So the primary goal of a company is to solve a problem or provide an answer. So in this case, you basically are failing in these two main things that are the main drivers for people to reach out to you, whether, uh, whether because they are, looking, they are looking for a product to solve a problem or a, an answer, again, to solve a problem. So it's mostly, okay, it's the bounce rate, uh, it's not ranking, uh, and we all know all these things, but it's mostly, it's also branding, reputation, and offering a very bad user experience that then reflect on your, on the perception that people have, have on your brand, about your brand. So it's something that can escalate quickly. Yeah, I had uh, a situation where, and this happened in the U in the UK, where a client had a UK version of the site, and there was really no delineation between the US English version and the UK English version. And in Google UK, the US version was ranking when they wanted the UK version to be ranking, because the UK version ranking had the local currency. And when I tried to, to figure out, okay, like what's what's going on here? my obvious first thing in their obvious first thing was, Hey, the href lang tags are all messed up. And I looked at those and I was like, they're, they're actually set up perfectly. Uh, and I plugged, uh, it, the, the, the pages in question into Google search console. And the response was this page is a duplicate of another page and here's the duplicate. And it was the U S page. And I said, this isn't a technical issue. This is because you haven't translated it, or you haven't uh, you haven't put the uh, the UK version of the page into the local dialect, and so like maybe you need to think about that, or maybe you just need to not have ten different English versions <laughs> of the page yeah, because Google sees yeah. them all as the same uh, as the same. So pretty pretty inter interesting, uh, and that's coming. And this leads into one of my next questions. Uh, I. I get into situations at an agency where a lot of times we start and it's it's US-based strategy out. Uh, and there are times where they say, Jake, can you help me with my international strategy? And I say, sure, but I'm not as good as somebody that's in market. And, you know, I try to make my way, but it's impossible for any, any one person to know all the languages or how all of the different versions of Google or other search engines are working out. So like as somebody from the outside looking in, if you're a person like me that sometimes gets stuck awkwardly trying to fit into the role of international strategist, what do you recommend somebody like me does about that? <laughs> So my first recommendation would be to um, make a list of the things you have to do. So replicate the things that you have done for the uh, US version uh, and then estimate the time you need to do each of these things in another language. Present the list to your boss with the cost for each action because you need to spend time because you are not an expert. So they have to pay you more. Because right. and then you have to take time <laughs> off other clients, and as soon as you put a cost uh, beside every single item, uh, your boss will change your mind. But aside from this, which is kind of extremely 
uh, it's a different kind of recommendation. I would say um, the first thing to do is the, basically, again, uh, do a list with all the things uh, that you have done for the US version uh, and put in place at least uh, the technical structure because it's the foundation of everything. Once you have this uh, uh, it's, it's common and it's also a good practice if you are not on the market and you have no help is to take the list of the keywords that you rank for the US version and see if they can somehow be adapted to the other language uh, by using a translator, by using a, a tool. Uh, it's not accurate, but it's a way to start out. And at least that you can find there, there's always something that it's a common ground between languages, something that replicates over and over some topics, some ideas, some keywords. There's always something that replicates, even that is a small win. Um, and then, of course, like in a case, I had to uh, redo the taxonomy for a, an entire e-commerce starting from the US one. And there was categories, unexisting categories for us in Europe. So in that specific case, I couldn't replicate the same. I couldn't even use the list, but it's another problem. When you have at least a few keywords that you can focus on, I would say try to find the common ground between languages. It's not easy. It is not easy at all, but it, it helps you start. But it's not easy. No. <laughs> but at least, yeah. I do like the idea of going to my client and asking them for uh, for them to send me to nine different countries so that I can take okay. a, a vacation to learn yeah. about the culture. I, I do like that. I don't think they're going to pay for it, but I do like that. <laughs> yeah, it's a good idea, actually. <laughs> right, right, right. Yes, that's the that's the best way to learn. I should just I should just go there. All right. Uh, so why don't we move? Uh, well, before we move into the Twitter questions of the week, uh, do we have any kind of closing thoughts on multilingual international SEO? Actually, some of the Twitter questions are somewhat, there's somewhat overlap, but any kind of semi-closing thoughts, I should say. Um, no, from my side, I think this is um, uh, an issue, multilingual SEO, multilingual content that it's raising and raising, uh, especially in the past couple of years uh, with this diversity discussion going around everywhere, the needs for customization uh, for a better user experience. So I would say if there's any company out there listening, do not over underestimate the effort that you need, but also the results that you can have if you want to enter a different market. Um, it's not something that you do in one day, but strategizing in the best way allows you to give results uh, also by betting on very few elements of your website. It, it's not always necessary to, to redo a website from zero. Sometimes it's just some tweaks, uh, some technical adjustments, some extremely focused content uh, just are sufficient to, to succeed and then you can escalate. Absolutely, but how would SEOs stay in business if there wasn't websites to redo and replatform every couple of months? That's true. <laughs> it's That's called job true. security. Start, yeah, that you start small and then you become essential to the companies. And right. this is oh, see, I, yeah. these are the results that yes. we can do better. Can't so why don't we do this? <laughs> let's do another redesign. Um, all right, so let's move into Twitter questions of the week. And this week we have a very special gift straight from Jeff's laser. 
<laughs> uh, we've got some custom uh, page two podcast coasters. So uh, the winner of the Twitter question of the week is going to going to get Jeff. How many coasters are they going to get? You're you're the one producing this. Yeah, so I'm, no, I'm not gonna. It'll be a four pack. Okay, I was going to say, I'm not going to si- sign you up for a specific number before I know what, what the actual capability is. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I could do a bunch, but yeah, I think four packs good. I don't know if people need uh, like 25 coasters. So Yeah, what are you going to do with 25 coasters? You know, <laughs> four, I think four is probably sufficient uh, yes. for it around the, around the house. Uh, so the best question, uh, as chosen, not by myself or Jeff, but as chosen by Veruska, uh, we'll get the coasters. So let's jump on in. So the first question comes from uh, Korean Komarek. And again, I'm going to apologize if I butchered your name. I actually think I got pretty close, but it's at Korean Komarek uh, on Twitter. Uh, and this question is, please define a food travel strategist. I love food and travel. Thanks. We all do. Yes. So I used to I used to define myself when I do food travel strategist uh, as someone that pretends to work, but in reality, just travel and eats. So I'm lucky enough to basically uh, help uh, tourism boards, hotels, companies uh, in putting in place strategies uh, for the strategies uh, for their um, food tourism activities. Whether it's tour, whether it's mostly landing pages, content, uh, and basically launch new products uh, within a C- the SEO landmark. Uh, but food travel strategies. Uh, can include a lot of different things and not just this you can include someone doing for example influencer marketing someone else doing ppc someone else doing local marketing because we sometimes forget that seo is also local extremely local and in these specific cases it can become powerful powerful tool so what i do it's mostly based on around content and uh, optimization and create, creating strategies on a long-term way, but a strategies in strategies in this um, in this field can do a plethora of other things. So I have a follow-up question to that. So when you kind of when you actually and first off, I should say like we probably could have just done an, a full episode on just food and just travel. Yes. Um, I would say uh, it, Italy and it's it just Italian heritage as a culture. I don't know if it's more frequently than other cultures because there are other cultures that have amazing food. But I feel like being an Italian, one of the things that you ultimately often come back to is food, uh, maybe more, more so than other cultures that I, that I've experienced. So it's very, very much a culture based in, based in food. And I, and I, I love it. So we probably could have talked for an entire episode just about Italian food exactly. uh, yeah. and travel. Yeah. That would, oh my goodness. Yeah. There's so many places, uh, especially recently that we've not been able to travel to that I would love to talk about, but when you're kind of engaging uh, that aspect of your offering or those skill sets, what types of companies come to you? Uh, is it is it food companies? Is it like mom and pop restaurants? Is it national restaurants? Is it travel travel or food bloggers? Like who do you most often work with? I work with uh, tourism boards, okay, hotels, uh, or but also big companies offering tours and stuff like that. In this in this field, I never work with. It, it's a, it, I tend not to work with smallest companies. It, it never happened. 
And uh, yeah, I am focused on the big, not big names, but big companies or yeah, organizations and stuff like this. Okay, interesting. There is a market out there also for smallest and more local companies. It was none of the above option other. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Interesting. Um, all right. So our next question, our, actually our next couple of questions uh, come from the search discovery team. Search discovery coming strong with the questions. So this one's ripped them into shape. I, yes, I did. I, I, I held them under, under <laughs> pe- penalty of death. You need to bring amazing questions and they do it. They do a great job. They bring yeah. uh, really good questions every week that kind of contribute to the discussion. So search discovery people, if you like to hear me drone on and you're still listening, I thank you. Uh, so this next question comes from Chris Vankara, who is not actually on Twitter, but he still brought the brought the thunder with a four part question. I don't know if we'll get to all four parts. Um so uh, what are your thoughts on separate domains uh, versus having uh, alternative language folder structure for multilingual? Uh, for me, it's not one or another. It depends by your resources, your resources, uh, your budget, the time you want to spend. Of course, if you have uh, um, a country called top level domain, uh, you have more chances to reach local people. But again, it's really you need to find a balance. We are not always working with Amazon that can have the privilege of having a country called top-level domain. Uh, so sometimes, uh, very often, for smallest companies, uh, um, folders uh, is possibly the best uh, choice in terms of effort, money spent, uh, and revenues. I don't think there's one that's best compared to another. It's a personal, uh, a business choice. Um, and I'll do a follow-up to that because I think this is an interesting topic that I've delved into over my time. Do you, uh, are you a proponent of not just having folders for a language, but also folders for specific regions uh, and having them both combined together? Yes. Yes, in order to reach more customized and more local people that you can uh, and also beat competitors, especially if you are in a very competitive niche. The more, it's like skills, the more you specialize, the better you are. It's basically the same principle applies. So if you cannot go for the uh, top level domain, uh, the more you get in depth with the folders, the better it is uh, for me then- at least and my experience. And then a follow-up question also from from Chris that we, and I'm surprised we didn't quite touch on this earlier, but I'm glad we're touching on it now. Um, Search engine considerations in places where Google either is not the dominant search engine or Google, uh, the version of Google that exists in, in the country is not as advanced as Google US. Yeah. This is a, a topic that I very often ask, something, a question that I very often ask myself, uh, and the, there's no answer because basically you have Google and then for the, let's say, English-speaking countries, you have Yahoo still, you have Bing. But then you enter a whole different world when you go on Baidu or Yandex uh, or mm-hmm. extremely um, localized ver- search engines where you not only have to rethink your overall digital marketing strategy and SEO strategy, you really need to know the culture. 
So it's hard to say what to use if you want to go to a different market if Google is not available, because it's not a question of what you can use, uh, what you, you, you should use. It's a question of what you can use at its best to get results. And it's, it's for certain market, uh, also for Russia, Yandex doesn't work like Google. It mimics the Google, but the, the logic behind Yandex is completely different. So you think, okay, it works in the same way because basically uh, it used the same tagging system, but then uh, you put in place a structure that in reality it's filtered in a different way because it's a different logic. So uh, I think we are not at that stage unless we are locals, locals. I mean, if there was an Italian search engine, possibly I would know everything about it because it's my main language. Uh, but unless you are extremely local, other search engines at this stage are extremely hard to understand. So I would say Google, I wouldn't estimate Bing, to be honest. Um, not in terms of reach, but in terms of results, because you get possibly less people using it, but more interested people, people that are actually using it for a purpose and that may convert better for your product, your landing page, your service, uh, because there is less competition. So uh, I, I, I had a discussion a few months ago with somebody that would just say to me, I use Bing because there's less noise. So we should take advantage of the less noise part and make sure that we rank there as well if we want to use a, a, a different search engine. But at this stage, I still think that Google takes the majority of the, of the pie and it's normal. Yeah, until someday when uh, they get broken up as a monopoly. Exactly. Next question comes from new SDI team member and former page two podcast alum. Fun fact. Uh, so this is, this next question comes from Angela Bergman. I actually interviewed Angela uh, way back at the beginning of season two uh, when she worked for another company and she recently joined us at search discovery and we connected. We, I mean, there, there was like not much con connection uh, between those two occurrences, other than as she was interviewing, it was uh, really great for all the other search discovery people that did not know her to be able to go and listen to her on the episode to say like, yeah, actually she gets it. So she's been awesome so far, but she is at Rad Kitten on Twitter. So her question uh, is, are there UX differences across countries and cultures? And if so, what are the potential roadblocks? There are, and sometimes we don't even notice the differences anymore because we are used to it. So the first one that comes to my mind uh, is how uh, you guys in the U.S. write dates and numbers compared to how in Europe writes dates and number. Uh, it's one of the biggest uh, uh, differences, and it's also one of the biggest mistakes that you see when companies or individuals localize the website, they completely forget this. It's <laughs> like something that slips out of people's mind, but it's confusing for us because uh, it's just something that we are not used to. And the same goes for, for example, in India, they write, uh, I think, money or yeah, stuff with money in a completely different way compared to every other country in the world. And so 
these are possibly the two biggest uh, the two biggest differences there's also a difference in how people search so for example uh, people in asia search uh, from uh, right to left while or from japanese search uh, vertically and uh, even if you don't go in depth with localization uh, you need to take Uh, in consideration the fact that sometimes Japanese people just search vertically. So you may adapt your layout for their uh, needs. Um, but yeah, there is a big difference and that's part of what someone working in this multilingual uh, industry should assess as well. Because once again, I repeat this over and over and it's, it, uh, sorry, I sound like a broken record, uh, but it's all about the user experience. So you mm -hmm. don't convert if you don't provide a, a good user experience and UX is fundamental. So I think there is there are differences. These are just the biggest one that comes to my mind, uh, just thinking out loud, but there are others for sure. Yeah, in America. Colors. To say America loves to switch numbers around. Like I don't, I don't get our date process because it makes so much more sense to start with the year, month and day. Than it does to start with you know month day year but just for, just for sorting if you try to do it in excel yeah right you have to exactly. build logic to yeah do it. it's same with the metric system like i'm I, i use the metric system more than the average american so it's okay um you know i, I measure everything in grams and liters and i also uh I, i also like doing things with lasers and 3d printers everything's in millimeters so it just makes more oh, sense yeah. it's like i don't know Yeah, we're the only country in the world, I think, that uses Fahrenheit when the rest of the world uses Celsius. It's yep. stupid. Oh, yeah, that's, that's another one, actually. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Uh, and then I will say one that I ran into most recently for a multilingual website when writing structured data, uh, when you're doing something like postal address, the markup from schema.org is very English US centric. <laughs> And I was trying to write structured data for an, an address from, I believe the address was maybe Iran uh, or someplace in the Middle East. They don't have zip codes. They don't have anything. Uh, no, it was um, Dubai. Dubai, not Iran. Probably, huge, probably difference. Uh, uh, but yes, uh, they don't have zip codes. So like that's a required field but they don't have zip codes. So what do you put? Uh, and I ran into that and I was like, well, I guess my work's done for the day. Uh, can't, can't actually do that. So uh, interesting. Um, so yeah, it's like when you work with food, with recipes, it's the same thing. Yeah. The schema markup is based on the US system and then you have, well, it's easier to adapt compared to their postal right. code. Yeah, that was, that was a weird one where I truly truly did not know what to do about that <laughs> other than leave it blank. Uh, our fourth question. So we got two more questions. Our fourth question comes from Wade Saunders, another SDI uh, stalwart uh, at heels for corners on Twitter is uh, his question is, have you ever seen a situation where hreflang sitemaps work better than hreflang tags? Never personally. Never seen a situation. I think it depends by the implementation. I personally have never seen a difference in ranking or performances. It once again, it's like the structure. You choose what it's more most functional mm -hmm. for your website. Test A/B test everything, 
and see what happens. Uh, sitemaps are possibly uh, a longest process, uh, um, but save time on the long run, while the tags can be a little bit daunting if you have ever changed uh, pages, add, add pages, and you have nothing uh, automatically in place. But in terms of um, what performs better, I've never seen a, a huge difference, to be honest. Actually, I would love to have, a, have someone tell me there's I, I had this experience, so this worked better than this, and these are the reason why. Yeah, every time I've had that question from a developer, it's always been, well, which one's easier for you to implement? Exactly. Yeah. Um, last question comes from former SDI, uh, our former SDI colleague, Mr. Zach Chahalis, at Zach Chahalis on Twitter. When it comes to hreflang, how often do you see sites using X default and is that worth accounting for? That's a very technical <laughs> question. <laughs> I hope not. I hope that it's not worth accounting anymore for anybody in the world because it's so awkward. I mean, it's one of those things that adds a layer of, of something that's very unnecessary to get through for users and for developers. So I was working actually, this is funny because I was working on this big website before the pandemic came and they had this structure, this uh, um, basically the X default tag in place. So you landed on the, what was the secondary homepage, let's call it like this, it's not the right word. And then you had a menu where you cho could choose your country and it was so weird uh, because why you are sending me to this page when you know exactly where I'm coming from. I want to go directly to the landing page I'm interested in. So in my opinion is not please get rid of this as soon as you can. It's, it's just unnecessary. It's a step more a layer, a complicated things so, and it's, it's not user friendly once again. And it's an, another line of code that we don't need. Mm -hmm. I, um, when I'm identifying hreflang issues, one of the most common is do not does not include uh, x default. All right, so let's pick a winner of these page two podcast coasters. So question number one was uh, Korean or Co Korean Korean uh, uh, food travel strategist. Question number two was uh, from Chris on separate domains in folder structure and Google not being the dominant search engine. Question number three was from Angela on UX differences across countries and cultures. Question number four was Wade uh, on hreflang uh, uh, tags versus sitemaps. And Zach's uh, question was around hreflang, the X default attribute. I will go with Angela and the UX question because it, it, it actually was it's so interesting that I I now want to dig dig deep in this because it, it was just something that yeah I didn't expect I was expecting something more um, technical like the other questions but not something more like cultural related so yeah I would go for that question all right so Angela is the new winner of uh, some uh, brand new page two podcast laser lasered coasters. Uh, and we will be reaching out to you uh, to send those coasters uh, your way. Uh, so Jeff, why don't you take us home? Let's finish up the episode. 
Sure. So this is one question we love to ask all our guests. And um, what words of advice would you give to a person that's just getting into SEO? Um, two advice. The first one, if, if you are starting out, is to take every advice, article, recommendation out there with a pinch of salt and learn as soon as you can to, um, to choose your sources accurately. Because it, it, even if it ranks first in Google or if you see everywhere on social media, it doesn't mean that it's giving you good advice. So take everything that you read with a pinch, more than a pinch of salt and start experimenting. And the second one, possibly the, the one that I always tell also when I, when I teach SEO to people is uh, specializing, become specialized in something. The more... Uh, skills, specialized skills you have today, the better it is. Because uh, SEO is such a, a, a broad topic, a broad industry that can be split in, in multiple different small industries and small topics. So I actually vouch for highly, be, becoming highly specialized the more you can. And the, the sooner the better. As a foodie, what type of salt would you pinch? Throw it over your shoulder too. <laughs> is there is there a specific salt you like? No, <laughs> um, uh, yeah. no, not specifically. I, I, I sat on a I, I sat on a meeting with the New York Times cooking team or people on the cooking team, oh and they spent thirty minutes talking about different types of salt they use, and I was like, I, I need to start ordering more salt because I yeah. uh, I just I have salt. I, so. I like to cook with kosher salt. Uh, yeah. There's a big difference between regular salt. And I know that that's probably not like, I'm sure that your New York Times cooking team has much better salt <laughs> than just regular salt and kosher salt. But I, I like to cook with that. And I like the uh, the thickness uh, of the kosher salt. So yeah. uh, like if you ever eat, for example, edamame, you don't just put regular, you put kosher salt on top of uh, yeah. the edamame. And I would also say I like seasoned salt as well to go with my oh, nice. salad. So yeah, always pretty good. So Veruska, uh, where can people find you? So you can find me pretty much everywhere on social media and on my personal website, which is pretty hard to pronounce because it's my surname. So it's www.anconitano.com. And if you are into food and travel, you can also read me and our articles on thefoodlers.com. And yeah, basically, but if you look for my name, I'm pretty much everywhere. Blabbering on every social media out there. Now I'm really into Clubhouse because I need to know nice. what all this thing about. Uh, and also La Cucina on Twitter. Twitter. Um, yeah. Twitter. All right. Uh, yes. Yeah, so thank you so much for coming on. This was a, a really great discussion. Multilingual and international is Definitely. not a topic we get into uh, very often. And, and also the, you know, coming at it from a freelance and a consultant angle uh, is, is not something that we get, uh, you know, as often. So uh, very, very excited to have talked to you and uh, thank you so much for coming on. And, and it is very late on a Friday night. Uh, so we do appreciate you staying on late and spending your Friday night with us for our listeners you know, by now we record on Fridays and then we release our episode. If my editing is quick on Mondays, sometimes it's been Tuesdays, Wednesdays, uh, but I do my best. Uh, we do turn our editing around quickly. So if you're listening to this episode next week, have a great week uh, and we'll see you next week with another great episode.
Thank you so much, guys, for having me and have a nice day. Thank you so much for listening to the Page Two Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about the show or listen to new episodes, visit us at page2podcast.fm. That's page, the number two, podcast.fm. Our episodes are also available on a number of other platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Breaker, Deezer, Overcast, CastBox, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. Additionally, you can also listen and watch our show on our YouTube channel or follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. If you'd like to get in touch with us, contact us at thepage2podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, happy optimizing.